Well, would you turn to Mark 13? Mark 13, and we're continuing from last week's message. So uh, this week we'll, we'll be looking at verses 11 to 13. Mark 13 from verses 11 to 13. But um, uh, what we do is we are going to read the whole piece together as one, one chunk. Uh, from verse 9 to verse 13 we'll be reading this morning. And the, Lord of, and the word of God says, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you, and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Well, last time we went back to the future and we learned the impact of the seven-year period on the people of God. It was about persecution. That's what we looked at last week. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. God says that he will remove his restraining hand from the Antichrist. And like a savage wolf, thirsty for blood, the Antichrist will be unleashed. And as he begins to deceive the world, the world's hatred to Jesus will rapidly escalate to a new height never seen before. Anyone who's named even superficially a Christian, just just the label as a Christian will be subjected to severe persecution. In fact, in Mark chapter, same chapter, chapter 13, and later on in verses 19 and 20, the Lord Jesus says, For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Meaning all hell will break loose on the elect. It will be the last yet the greatest persecution Christians will ever have to face. Waves upon waves of persecution will splash blood on the face of Christians. A cloud of darkness will rain fire and brimstone in those days simply because they claim that they belong to Christ. And Satan, the Antichrist, and the unbelievers at that time, they're not going to go into your heart and examine if you're truly converted or not. They're just going to come at you with full force. And yet, it will be an opportunity to testify how precious Christ is to you. 
God will use this upcoming severe persecution as a vehicle to transport the gospel to the world. The gospel will be proclaimed to all the nations. And this was last week's message. Today will be a continuation of this study, but what we're going to be doing today is that we're going to be analyzing the three key players as far as this persecution will take place. Three key players who are really going to be involved in this persecution. And you have three, and that will form the outline for today's message. You've got the spirit, you've got the sinners, and the saints, the spirit's role, the sinner's role, and the saint's role. What is God's involvement during that time as far as those persecuted followers of Christ are concerned? What will Christ, what will the spirit do? So we'll start with the spirit's role. God will not be sensed as any nearer to his people as when there is severe persecution. Let us take comfort in this. And we read in verse 11, it says, When they arrest you and hand you over. Now the word here is when, not if they arrest you, when they arrest you, meaning your arrest is inevitable. It's going to happen. Don't bother try to hide. It's not going to work. You can run, but you won't hide. You won't be able to. In fact, this word when it can also be translated. And sometimes it was, it is translated to the word whenever, whenever, meaning whenever they arrest you and hand you over, meaning you have to be on standby. You'll have to be on your toes all the time. You will copper at any time. And you will be arrested and dragged to the court. And when they do that to you, when they will hand you over to be examined and cross-examined and to be prosecuted, Jesus says, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say. In other words, when you're summoned to be tried, when you're about to be grilled, for you're identifying yourself to be with Christ. When you stand before judges and juries, and even when false witnesses rise up and stand in the witness box, when charges are laid against you, that you dared somehow to defy the government's directives because you chose to obey the Lord's clear and direct commands. When your neck is on the line, and you can just imagine what would happen at that time. When the media is called in and all the national news and satellite news have come for media coverage. When press conference is called and cameras are flashing and photos are taken and your names are in the front and center of the breaking news. Here are the rebels. Here are the thugs. Here are the criminals of the age, of the century. And what is the charge? The charge could be this. They're assembled together to worship the Savior. They went out in the street to preach the gospel. And then Jesus says, 
do not worry beforehand about what you have to say. Don't be anxious. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't worry, meaning be comforted, right? Be at peace and be bold. How, Jesus? How can we not worry when we are the underdogs? How can we not be anxious? Why? For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Now, this speaks of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What a rich encouragement this is. The followers of Jesus in the last days won't need a lawyer to defend their case. Christians will speak and their best persecutors will, will, will be left dumbfounded. No one will be able to resist what they have to say. Why? It'll be God himself that will live in them, will speak to them and through them. And history is filled with these kind of examples. The height of trouble. God gave his own people extraordinary composure, profound wisdom that their own enemies could not refute, and it led to the advancement of the kingdom of God. And we see that even in the Old Testament, when Moses was troubled, when he stood before God, Yahweh, and he was anxious about what was going to happen, God said to him, I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you ought to say. Jeremiah, when God came and summoned him to and commissioned him to go and proclaim the good news, and Jeremiah was afraid. In Jeremiah 1 verse 8, it says, God says, do not be afraid of them. Why? For I am with you to deliver you, declares Yahweh. And in chapter 5 verse 14, I love this verse. I love it. It says, Behold, I am making my words in your mouth fire, and this people would, and it will consume them. Do not worry, Jesus says. When persecution is upon us, God's hand will carry us, and the Holy Spirit will fill us. What an encouragement. What comforting truth that God makes our homes his abiding home, our hearts his abiding home. He hugs his own children with these words, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The good night kiss of the loving father on the cheeks of the persecuted children is low. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What love is this? What devotion is this? That we see God accompanying his own broken people every step of the way. And the love of Christ will not be sensed more than on these days when we are under severe persecution for his sake. Romans 8.35, it says this, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution 
or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. Brothers, sisters, persecution is not an obstacle for us to enjoy the love of Christ. It is the very means by which we are going to enjoy the love of Christ. And when we know that God is with us, when every thorny step of persecution our feet will tread upon, we know that God is going to be in us, illuminating our eyes and speaking through us what persecution then is there for us to fear. Is such a great comfort, wonderful confidence that we can have because the Holy Spirit will be in us. No matter how much persecution coming our way, God will never change his home address, people. He will never relocate. Once he lives in you, he stays in you forever. And what does he do in you? Well, the Holy Spirit is called the comforter. Meaning when you're down and out for Jesus' sake, he will comfort you. The Holy Spirit is our strength, the Bible tells us. Meaning that when you're run down and, and feel there is no energy left in you, he will strengthen you. And he will remind you of Christ and of the preciousness of Christ. And when you're under severe persecution for Jesus' sake and you're lost for words and you don't know what to say, he has his way of turning you into a loudspeaker and he will speak through you. You know what this speaks of? This speaks of the faithfulness of God. Oh, the faithfulness of our God, the loyalty of our God. He committed Himself to his people for good. You will not sense how powerfully he works in you more than when you're under this extreme stress. This is the real ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is why we're not to worry when we face hardship in our lives for Jesus' sake. It says in First John chapter 4, verse 4, Greater is he who is in you than who, he who is in the world. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come from? My help comes from Yahweh who made heaven and earth. God says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says Yahweh of hosts. How can we have a God like our God and yet be worried? Brothers, sisters, is there any suffering that you're experiencing because you belong to Christ? Christ in this text is saying to you, even during this suffering, you can be worry-free. How come? God is dependable. You can count on Him. You can depend on Him. And so in the midst of our fiery furnace, in the lion's den, brothers, let our hearts sing, what a faithful God have I, faithful in every way. This is the role of the Holy Spirit. He will guide us, he will remind us, he will comfort us, he will strengthen us, and he will speak through us. 
the role of the Holy Spirit. That's number one. Second, the role of the sinners on that day. And Jesus here nearly breaks it down into two parts. He speaks of the role of sinners and how uh, they will oppress and persecute believers at that time privately and also they will do it publicly. There is a specific persecution and there is a general persecution. First we'll look at the specific persecution and that is in relation to family members. The strong affection, the unwavering loyalty of the saints, the believers at the time to Jesus Christ will drive a wedge within a family unit. Those that will identify themselves to be with Christ will, will cause even those closest to them to hate them. It's crazy, but it, but it's true. Now you might say, well, no way. My father loves me so much. He will never hate me. My children will hate me. No way. You might say, well, you know, we might get into each other's nerves every now and then, but hate is a strong word. Let's read the text. Verse 12. Brother will betray brother to death. There will be bloodshed within a family unit. This word deliver, betray, sorry. It's the same word as the word deliver in verse 9 and is the same exact word um, as hand you over in verse 11. It's the same word. What this is saying is that the unbelieving brother will make a citizen arrest of his believing brother and will turn in his own flesh and blood to the government authority. It won't be like Cain who killed Abel with his own hands. No, it'll be like Judah, Judas when he betrayed Jesus and got him killed. The unbelieving brother won't do the murdering, but he will be the informer, the whistleblower. He will snitch on his believing brother and he will tell where his sibling is hiding, where he's gathering to worship, where he's preaching. And he's going to contact the government officials and he will say to them, go and get him. Go kill him. Kill my brother. Brother will betray brother to death. Unbelieving brother will betray his believing brother to death. Then Jesus drives it even deeper. As he continues to expose the wickedness of man in his last days. And I don't think there can be any more devastating hatred than this. It says a father, his child, fathers who, who are meant to protect the lives of their children, who, who ought to be guardians of their little ones, to nourish them and to feed them. These unbelieving fathers once they smell that you're born again, that you're committed your life to follow Jesus, they will betray you and they will turn you into the government. Now, when they turn you into the government, why? What's the intention? This word death is repeated twice in that one verse. And that is to emphasize the extent of this betrayal. 
when the father betrays his child, it is not so that the child will get flogged or to pay a fine or to even go to prison. No, it will be to get rid of you for good, to end your life. On those days when children will ask for shelter, unbelieving fathers will give them government. When the children ask for protection, their unbelieving fathers will give them death. Now, when you think it's, gonna, it's not going to get any worse than that, Jesus continues and he says, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. The unbelieving children will spy on their believing parents and they will rise in rebellion and they will bite the very hands that fed them and will betray them to the government so that to put their believing parents to death. Let's put it into perspective. At Jesus' time, children were seen but not heard. Children were to esteem and hold their parents in the highest honor, highest respect. But this will change in the last days. What worse thing could happen to the family relationship than the children who are fed and cared for and looked after, hugged and kissed with much affection? Not to mention the sleepless nights and the rushing to the doctors when they fall sick and the change of nappies and the washing of the clothes. Yet these evil children will rise up and they become the informants of their believing parents. And somehow they will contact the authorities and again the government will take a big role in the future and please watch, uh, watch last week's message. Because it was in relation to the government and what the Bible says about them. So the government will arrest these parents. And they will say, guilty as charge. And what is their guilt? What's the charge? They belong to Jesus Christ. We've got to put them to death. Those unbelieving children... They will hate their parents so much that they will want to get, get them killed. How deplorable. How awful. The unbelievers, their hatred to God, these last days will be thicker than their love for their own flesh and blood. Of course, Jesus already warned us about this. He already told us about that. In Matthew 10, verse 34, Jesus already said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Meaning, Jesus didn't come so that we would have a cozy or trouble-free life. No. He came to bring a sword. And what is that sword? What does that mean? He continues on in verse 35 of Matthew 10, and he says, For I came to set a man against his father, and the daughter against her mother, 
and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. The hatred towards believers will be the norm. And it won't be just limited to family members that would hate the Christians. No, it will be in the atmosphere. It will be worldwide. It will be a global hatred towards Christians. We move into the general. Sinners, sinners role. That's still second point. But now we go into the general. And here in verse 13, Jesus says, <clears throat> You will be hated by all because of my name. Now, I spent a little while trying to break this down a little bit and understand it even in the Greek text just to see what Jesus really meant by that. And, um, and let me explain to you my interpretation. So we're going to put the Greek caps on and we're going to learn a little bit about what it really means if I would translate it literally. So just pay attention to what this verse is saying. All right. I'm going to tell you what it means, literally speaking. Verse 13. This is what it really meant to be read, how it's meant to be read. You will be hated by all because of my name. It's the same. It's no different. It is what it is. You will be hated by all. Because of my name. There is nothing complicated about it. Whether in Greek, Arabic, Hebrew, it doesn't matter. It is what it is. You will be hated by all because of my name. There will be opposition on every side. You're going to be maliciously accused with every kind of wicked thing. It will be thrown at you. The world will come and say to you, you guys are judgmental. You're intolerant. Look at these Christians. Look at them. What we all want to unite together and we're trying to have one world religion, but these guys are not budging in. They're not getting in line. Who do they think they are? These Christians are arrogant. That They're full of pride. They think they're the only ones who have the answer to world's biggest problems. And they think that all other religions are false and they are the only right ones. I mean, here we're trying to comply to, to the one world order except for those Christians. And you will be hated by whom? All. All. That's all the nations that the gospel will be preached to. All the governments will hate you. All races. All classes of people, the rich, the poor, the beggars, all religious people, the Muslims, the Buddhists, the Hindus, the Mormons, all of them will gang up and hate you. There, there won't be love in here. As far as Christians are concerned, there will only be hatred in the air. And why will they hate you? Jesus tells us, because of my name. The world will hate you because of Christ. We but speak what the Lord commands us. 
But obviously this enmity of the world is directly against Jesus Christ because of my name. There's no name under heaven that is loved by the people of God more than Jesus' name. But yet at the same time, there is no name that is so hated by the world more than Jesus' name. Jesus Christ stands alone on the stage of this world to be the most appalled, yet most applauded, the most hated, yet most loved. And the wrath of man will be poured out in full fury on the people of God. Why? Because of the world's immense hatred towards Jesus Christ. And as the world begins to gnash their teeth at the believers and spit on their faces for Jesus' sake, do you know what's going to happen? God will expose the heart of man. And Jesus in these last days will use the persecution that is to come as an evidence to show the world their desperate need for the Savior that their hearts are not as white as they claim to be. No, their hearts are desperately sick and beyond repair. That their hearts don't need to be fixed. No, their hearts need to be replaced. And the ones that God will call to be saved will be convinced that the very one whom they're rejecting by means of persecuting his people Namely, Jesus Christ himself is the only remedy to their heart problem and it will lead to their salvation. It will lead to their salvation. Even persecution is God's persecution. And God will turn it for good. Praise be to God. He knows exactly what he's doing. Even in the hatred of man, God knows exactly what he's doing. As it says in Romans, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. That's the role of the sinners. We've looked at the spirit's role, the sinner's role. Now we look at the saints role and jesus here ends this paragraph with another strong encouragement how will the true believers respond at that time brothers drink of this encouragement that jesus is about to share with us drink it in jesus says but the one who endures to the end he will be saved what is Jesus saying here? Well, let me first tell you what Jesus is not saying. So we're not confused about it. Jesus is not saying here that if someone somehow dies before Jesus' return, he will lose his salvation because he didn't live to the end. That's not what it's saying. Otherwise, what this would mean then that all those who would be martyred for Jesus' sake will perish. Because they didn't endure till the end. No. This would not make any sense. 
What Jesus is saying here is that the true believer will remain devoted to Christ to the end of his life. Whether he'll be martyred or not, it really doesn't matter. But he will endure his devotion to Jesus Christ will continue to the end. This is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Saving faith. Saving faith is a gift, free gift given by God to his people. You know that, right? We can't fabricate this saving faith. You can't do it in your own. It's a supernatural faith given by God to his people. Philippians 1.29 tells us about this saving faith. It says, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It has been granted for Christ's sake, meaning it has been gifted to you, freely given to you to believe in him. And this saving faith is a resilient faith. It is a stuff as nails kind of faith. It will never bow its knees before the Antichrist or anyone else. It will never completely evaporate in the fiery furnace. Praise God. Saving faith, it is made to last. It is stronger than diamond. It may fall into temptation. Sometimes it will grow weary or even in a moment of weakness, it would deny Christ like Peter did. But saving faith will never apostatize. It will never recant. It will never completely fall away from the faith. Paul tells us in Philippians, same book, where he said, that it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him. In that same book, he says to the Philippians, for I am confident of this very thing. What are you confident in, Paul? He tells us that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, at the point of regeneration, what does God do? What does Ezekiel 37 tells us that God does at the point of regeneration? God takes away the heart of stone and he gives his people a new heart and he puts new desires in this heart. And the purpose of all these desires is one thing and that is to magnify the name of Christ. And even in the darkest hour, the new heart's desire will be loyal to the Lord through and through. And so Jesus says this, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Endurance is the very sign that God has indeed given you a saving faith. So meaning the time will come when a sword will be pressed on the throats of believers. But those who are truly saved because of the saving faith that God has already given them, because of the new desires and the new affections for Christ, they now have these true believers will 
say with David, as in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will what? Fear no evil. In the last days, you will be persecuted by your family members and you will be pinned to the corner and you will have to make a choice. Will we deny Christ to have peace with our unbelieving husbands, wives and children? Or will we remain loyal to Christ and risk being rejected by our family members? And the Holy Spirit, through this saving faith that He has given you, will speak into your life the truth that Jesus has already spoken. And it says, and as Jesus says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. There will be a T intersection in the last days. Will we forsake Christ and our lives will be spared? Or will we give our allegiance to Christ no matter the price we pay or what happens to our lives? And those who will endure till the end. Because of the saving faith that God has given them, they will say with Paul, the apostle, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Again, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Theodore, he was martyred at 306 AD. He was beheaded. And these were his last words. I know not your gods. Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, is my God. Beat, tear, or burn me. And if my words offend you, cut out my tongue. Every part of my body is ready when God calls for it as a sacrifice. Polycarp was martyred 155 AD. He was burnt alive and while he's being burnt, he was stabbed to death. And these were his last words. For 86 years I have served Jesus Christ and he has never abandoned me. How could I curse my blessed King and Savior? And in the last days, there will be ten thousands of Polycarps and Theodores, and there will be an army of men and women who, like Moses, will fling away the worldly possessions for Christ. And they will stand shoulder to shoulder with John the Baptist and Stephen and, and Peter, who were beheaded and stoned and crucified. And God in the last days will raise men and women who will not consider their lives any count as dear to themselves so that they would finish the race and the course of their lives to testify 
of the gospel of grace of God. Men in those days will live exclusively for Christ and they will happily die for Christ. And they will wrestle to the ground to make sure they live and they do everything in the name of Christ. Men in those days will delight to perceive their lives as candles and they will beg God to light them up so that they would burn for God. Brothers, sisters, I don't know about you, but I want to be this kind of man. By the strength of God and the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, I want to be that kind of man. And I pray and I want to invite you, brothers and sisters, to also desire to be this kind of man. To live for Christ as though today is our last day. Would it need to wait for this great persecution to come? To be so blessed and so honored, so privileged to live for Christ with this kind of attitude. Well, as we come to the end, and I do want to wrap it up. How? How do we, how do we live this kind of life? What must we do to live this kind of life? Well, let me tell you. We must open our hearts. Our hearts ought to be a great stomach and digest the love of Christ for you. We must enjoy the love that God has for us. That's the only way that we can live this kind of life. It is not so much our love for Christ, but it is, it begins with, and it's caused by knowing and drowning ourselves into the love of God for us. I beseech you, brethren, let the love of Christ compel us. Let, let his love rule in our hearts. How do we do that? Consider the love of Christ on the cross. The scripture says that he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Meaning, your sins were so great, your iniquities were numerous, and so much that they have gone over your heads, that you had no hope, absolutely no hope, but to die and to perish forever. Why? It is the just payment for the crimes that we committed against the Holy God. And while we are helpless and hopeless, while you could do nothing to, to flee from the wrath to come, from God's judgment that was surely coming upon you, Jesus died for you as your substitute. The infinitely worthy one would step into your place and die the death of a thug, a rebel, under the infinite weight of the wrath of the Almighty God. And all the wrath that you rightly deserve, this undiluted fury of God that we should have drunk was fully poured out on our substitute on the cross. This, brothers and sisters, is the heart of the gospel. 
the innocent Son of God, standing in the place of guilty sinners, bearing in his own body the full righteousness, the full righteous wrath of God. And it's because of that, brothers and sisters, we are declared righteous because the penalty for our sin has been paid by Jesus Christ on our behalf. What love is this that is shown to us, brothers? What mercy, what grace has been displayed on Calvary? Shall our Christ bear the wrath of God for our sake and we wouldn't be so grateful to bear the wrath of man for his sake? Would he wear upon his head the crown of thorns for us and we wear a crown of roses? Would we deny our heavenly husband for an earthly one? Should our loving eternal father not spare his son, but to deliver him up for us, and yet we would cling to our family members at his own expense? If I would borrow the words of Paul the Apostle, I would say, may it never be. May it never be. So dwell in the love of Christ on the cross, brothers and sisters. Let it overwhelm you. Let it compel you to live for him and to devote your life completely to him. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. We've been, Lord, humbled by your words. You're a faithful God. You will never leave us nor forsake us. Your spirit will be in us and will continue to be in us and we will Hear your spirit reminding us of the truth that you have already written in your word, Lord. Your spirit will comfort us, even at the time of persecution. And we praise you, God, for this. What an amazing God we have. What a faithful God we have. Even persecution is your persecution, Lord. It is not the devil's. It's not the people of this world's persecution. It is your persecution, Lord. And you will turn it for your glory and our good. And through this persecution, you will save multitudes of people. How amazing you are, Lord. And even, Lord, when we um, are pinned to the corner and we have to respond and say yes to Jesus, and we will devote our lives to him. And even if our family members will not follow after you, God, we will continue to follow you. And yet at the end, we will not boast in our choices because we look back in time and we find that it is actually because of you, God, that placed this saving faith in our hearts. It is because of that. It is because of your wonderful work in regeneration that we were able to say no to Caesar, no to the Antichrist, no to the world. 
even know to our unbelieving family members, it is because of you and the work that you're doing in us, God. And all of that will translate to praising you for eternity to come. Oh, we praise you, Lord. There is only one hero in your story, God, and it is you. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.